You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Maybe this, this line is fading, eh, Shafat? We've yeah. got load shedding here. Okay, yeah, people, uh, as Ashraf, uh, you can hear him uh, loudly and clearly telling us our load shedding is uh, worrying throughout the country. So please bear with us. Uh, we may have uh, some uh, uh, technical difficulties. But Alhamdulillah, the time of the evening where you join us on our legal talk. And uh, this evening on legal talk, we joined by uh, our very popular guest. I can even call him my co-host, uh, Ashraf Isup. And I tell you, he adds a value to this program. And he's a senior attorney, someone that's well sought, not only locally, but throughout the world. Alhamdulillah, senior attorney Ashraf Isub. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And jazakallah khair for joining us. Wa alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Shabbat, thank you once again for an opportunity to be able to serve and to share some of our knowledge that will be beneficial, inshallah, to our dear listeners. I mean, Ashraf, and also, uh, you know, I know uh, that uh, you went uh, for a holiday. They call it a rest, a much-needed rest, and uh, you went to the Fair Cape. How was it, Ashraf? Uh, did, uh, you know, the, because Ahmadidas Rahimullah really used to love the people of the Cape, and he used to tell me these are some of the best Muslims in the world, and he used to also commend them for being, uh, he called them at that time militant Muslims. How was your trip to the Cape, uh, Ashraf? Well, the Cape is always uh, the mother city uh, for, uh, let's say, the people that came from Europe. However, it has a very interesting and diverse history as well as nature. You know, it's a beautiful, beautiful part of the world. Of course, we also know that it is very close to Robben Island, which was used as a uh, penal colony. I must tell you, Shabbat, I on this trip, I was able to read up a little bit about something very interesting. You know, the Dutch and the way that the Dutch actually treated their prisoners of war, it was astonishing. I mean, the amount of cruelty and slow torture and punishment. And now when you see the remains of all these great Muslims that came, I'm talking about uh, Tuan Guru um, and the other 14 or 15 people that uh, are well known uh, in the Karamats of the Cape. It, 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 it took on a different, it took on a different view almost. Because here you're seeing the resting place of really, really great ulama. But the uh, suffering that they went through was unbelievable. I mean, when I read some of these uh, uh, records of torture, it, it was incredible. It was incredible. Now, remember, they were also shipped out uh, individually, not even as families. So they had to leave everything. And some of them were of royal lineage and they had to leave everything back because of the oppression of the Dutch and uh, they were brought all this way. At the same time, there were interesting discourses on the mariner skill that the Muslim mariner had and it is believed that some of these sailors were able to navigate 
due to their vast knowledge of the oceans and the skies, obviously. And they were brought in as mariners for some of these Dutch ships. So again, I, I haven't been able to locate it on this trip, but I believe that there is uh, at Cape Point a few graves or, or a little bit uh, further east, I believe, uh, of the early uh, settlers. And it's believed that some of them are graves of Muslim mariners. So, yes, the Cape is beautiful. It is um, very different from what we have here. It was very, very busy, but it has a historical back backbone. And I think maybe that's why the late Sheikh Amadidat had such a fond uh, words for the for the people of the Cape. The Burkab is full of history. As we know, the Awal Mosque uh, is there. Awal means the first. And in its rafters was found the um, was found the handwritten Quran of Sheikh Ahmed. And uh, I mean, there you have it, you know, written from memory, fully intact, a historical artifact, but again, showing you the magnificence of Obviously, the miracle that the Quran can be uh, can be memorized without fault uh, by people all over the world and can be reproduced even if there is not a single copy. So again, you know, from that perspective, very interesting. Um, and of course, now you're seeing uh, a different culture, um, the so-called Malay culture. Now, I make no distinction, but it was interesting for me to see uh, the kind of things that, that they had in as part of their history and that kind of thing. So, yeah, a very good trip indeed. Yes, Ashraf, alhamdulillah, and, uh, you know, you, you sound refresher because uh, you work hard and a lot of, as you said, in your profession, I mean, whilst you're on air, you, you, you get called. But, uh, you know, Ashraf, uh, thinking of this, uh, you know, our spirituality and it's something about the Cape, uh, uh, the, the, the love for the Quran, you notice it resonates uh, beautifully there. And uh, the way they, uh, the, they recite the Noble Quran and a lot of Qurans are coming there and uh, they're very highly rated, uh, but they incline more towards Al-Azhar uh, uh, Ashraf. Uh, yeah, I noticed that. Um, and I don't know, you know, I, I, I think historically also, uh, I mean, the fact of the matter is they were the first Muslims uh, in the southern tip of Africa. The, the uh, Shafi Fiqh was established there. And uh, I think mostly Egyptians are of, also of the Shafi Fiqh. I'm not sure, but the Hanafi Fiqh came later with the, uh, our forefathers coming from India which was bolstered by the Queen, uh, Queen Victoria appointing uh, Abdullah Fendi, uh, a Turkish scholar, to be uh, the teacher of the Hanafi Fiqh uh, here locally. And he's buried in uh, the Cape, in the, in the District 6 area, um, in, in, in the graveyard there. So, whether they have automatic links to Egypt, uh, whether it's historical or not, I don't know. But I, I, I see a lot of the the Qurra uh, 
coming from Egypt. Also, I was surprised that once I was in Mecca and we were speaking Afrikaans in one of the side streets and we were surrounded by a group of boys who told us they understood Afrikaans. One of them did. And we were surprised and we laughed it off and he said no. And he started speaking and he took us to meet his mother who was actually from the Cape uh, married to a local in Saudi. So I, I guess that they do get around um, and then you'll find that maybe this is why they have a strong presence in Egypt. I can tell you, Ashraf, I can give you full marks. Uh, absolutely true. They're Shafis and Shafis uh, and Egypt, uh, I think predominantly, mostly Shafis are living there and you hit the nail on the head and uh, full marks to you, you know, for uh, discussing that with us. And also you spoke about Effendi being a, you know, of the Hanafi uh, Mazhab and also, you know, uh, Sunni, but the uh, Turkish uh, foreign minister was on a tour of this country and he was in Cape Town and he paid, uh, you know, he went to the cover of Effendi and all that. Uh, Turkey's, uh, uh, you know, relationship with this country has, has always been a strong one. Ashraf, uh, what's your thoughts on that? Because uh, many of our people, many are living in Turkey now, Ashraf. So the Turkish relationship with, um, I think I said Abdullah earlier, but it's wrong. It's Abu Bakr Effendi. Uh, as we know, it was surprising that the Queen, I mean, imagine her uh, granting the request for him to come here in the 1860s to cater for the Hanafi needs. So at that time, as you know, Turkey was not at war with uh, the UK. It's only the uh, First and Second World Wars that they sided with Germany. So, um, I mean, our Hanafi fic, um and a lot of what we do today obviously goes back to India and goes back to the Hanafi roots, but uh, the common denominator was Turkey. So it was interesting when you say the Turkish impact because I, I believe, and it, whether it's anecdotal or not, but the, the Musulman with the red topi in the 1900s, when his testimony was given in court, it was accepted as truth. Such was the power of the uh, semblance of belonging to the Ottoman uh, Khalifat or the Ottoman Empire. Their power reached until 1923 to India and all parts of the Muslim world. So it's quite significant that you could be a Muslim uh, with a red topi in India or in South Africa, or in London, you know, all over the world, and, and you had the same identity. You identified by your by your your hat or your outer appearance. So very interesting to see how the Turkish influence existed then and now. For example, now recent, I mean, many people might not know, but Defy, which was a South African company, is now Turkish owned. Uh, all of the gas turbines that were going to uh, generate emergency electricity from ships uh, off the Natal coast is also uh, by a uh, Turkish company. Uh, there's a lot of influence uh, here. I mean, we see in the Midrand the first reconstruction of the Salomania type mosque in the Midrand area. So you can see even the minarets 
the minarets that you see that are now coming, what they say, Bosnian-type minarets, was actually of Turkish origin because, remember, the Khalifat spread right through Eastern Europe as well. Uh, so even the architectural design was influenced, um, has influenced um, uh, how mosques were built. Uh, very importantly, the Turks are known for reviving and, or, and up to this day, Shabbat, maintaining the wakaf system. So there are mosques in Turkey up to the present day that run a wakaf for 1200, 1400 years, where you're still entitled to three nights accommodation in the basement. And the wakaf even uh, prescribed the food you will eat. So a bowl of soup with no less than three pieces of meat and a chunk of bread. I mean, this is amazing when you think of a system that existed without any kind of hiccup for all these years. So wakafs is something else that we've received uh, from the Turks, and as you know, a lot of the mosques are run on that basis, madrasas, burial societies, uh, and the wakaf is, as we know, a sunnah. It goes back to Medina. Uh, the first uh, mosques and uh, wells and farms were all created out of wakafs. So again, very interesting to see that we still have the original teachings and this time via the Turkish expansion. Um, so, yeah, this is some of the things that we uh, have in our history. Jazakallah khair for that, Ashraf. You know, generally when you go uh, courts, uh, court cases, when the, the parents go to court and the mother and father, and uh, generally the mothers, uh, you know, maybe 90% of the time they win the cases. But uh, this one intrigued me, Ashraf. A South African-born child, age 13, will next week start school in Croatia after her father won a legal battle against his estranged wife to take his daughter with him and, uh, you know, to, uh, to, to to Croatia. And he assists in a Ukrainian refugee. And I'll, I'll just give you the gist of the story. The child's mother was shortly uh, before Christmas ordered by the uh, uh, South Kauteng High Court in Johannesburg to allow her child to live with her father. Uh, Judge Shanaz Mia ordered the mother to sign all the necessary documents relating to her daughter's relocation. If the mother refused to, to sign the documents, the sheriff of the court was entitled to do so on her behalf. Not only did the mother lose her battle for her child to remain here, but she also uh, uh, she was also instructed by the court to foot her husband's legal bill. Uh, Judge Mia made it clear that uh, the interest of a child will always prevail. In the case, the child made it clear she wanted to go to Croatia with her father with whom she had a better relationship. Uh, a quick comment from you, Ashraf. So let's break it down, right? There's a court order by Judge Mia saying, as the upper guardian of all minor children, the high court sits and determines what is in the best interest of the child. So in terms of Section 28 of the Constitution, the child has its own rights and its best interests are paramount. Now, how do we determine what is the best interest of the minor child? Well, the judge is not an expert and the judge always depends on the report of the family advocate. 
Now, this child is of age where the child is able to communicate what its desires are. In this case, I'm, I'm guessing from what you're saying, the judge was swayed by the child's own preferences and then ordered that the child will have a better life with the father abroad, irrespective of the fact that the mother lost her custody as well as what we call access to the child. Access is, is separate from maintenance. But whatever the facts of the case are, the judge must have been swayed by persuasive evidence that was in the form of the family advocate's report, where the family advocate would have conducted interviews with the parents jointly and with the children, as well as separately. And there must have been something very, very dramatic there for the judge to actually say, I'm removing you, a South African child, from our jurisdiction, and I'm saying that you can live quite happily with your father abroad. At the same time, I'm sure that there was the necessary arrangements for the mother to have contact and access to the child, who is still a minor. So interesting that you raise this, but that's how the legal system works. Now, you know, I know when you're reading it, it gives you a shock. How can the mother be deprived? Now, the mother is not necessarily the better parent in the eyes of the law. It is who has made a better case. So when the mother refused, um, and the court said, well, look, you're not going to uh, jeopardize my ruling. The sheriff will then be able to sign on your behalf. And uh, your rights then are further removed. So, you know, the important thing is the child had chosen to live with the, with the father. Eh? It, it wasn't anything else. Um, and, you know, for him, for the child to be with the father. And apparently, the father was involved in humanitarian and contact work uh, with Ukraine refugees. I don't know, um, you know, what else swayed the judge. Uh, but definitely, I mean, this is, this is just a lesson that the mother is not necessarily the natural parent that the child will be given custody to, or primary custody, or what we call um, um, primary parental rights. So I think that, you know, they, the court will also, as I said, take into account um, access for the mother, which, which must be reasonable and rational. And uh, they'll have to make arrangements for the child to come over the P uh, holiday periods, uh, religious holidays, etc. That, that is normally how uh, an application is made, uh, a judgment is made. I also understood that it was an urgent application. So, you know, urgent application is a very rushed procedure. And it might be that the father, you know, was just granted an interim order and not a final order because uh, uh, inter, uh, urgent judges never grant final orders. Uh, 
And I know that the, the father was not granted relief on the merits. The merits is is whether they, you know, if this is going to be a final order or not. So I, I think the case will come up at some future date, but certainly this is, in my view, an interim order. Yeah, I heard uh, you with uh, much interest, uh, Ashraf. Uh, subsequently, you know, I read some of the uh, uh, points of the mother. The mother uh, was of the view that the child, being a female, required a parent of the same gender to guide her as she grows up. And uh, as you talk about the family advocate indicated that the mother would have uh, contact regularly via WhatsApp and Zoom calls, uh, she would thus be able to maintain her relationship with the child and to advise her and counsel her on any issue. Uh, or any issues that will be there. And the mother was also concerned about the child's safety being in an area close to war in Ukraine. But the court said uh, the reality of the father's work in human, uh, humanitarian field is that it always will take him uh, to where this arises. So uh, very interesting indeed. I mean, uh, the mother was making um, some very valid points, but uh, I see the court uh, stood uh, with the father, Ashraf. Yeah, as I say, this is probably an interim order. It's not going to be uh, a final order. And um, as as we explained, the the judge didn't make the decision as an individual. She was granted. She was guided by the uh, family advocate's office, and they had completed their investigation. I think sometime in December. Uh, whether this thing is about the gender of the child is better served with the mother. As you know, you know, this is now all the rage, this whole gender thing uh, and, and, and the way that they're dealing with this gender neutral, etc., etc. You can see that in the future, there will be a lot of challenges along similar lines. Um, but I think the bottom line is not to presume that the mother is a better parent automatically. Here, here's a good example. Uh, but the matter is not yet settled. I'm, I'm sure that there's going to be a lot more that we're going to hear uh, in this matter, Shabbat. You know, you talk about the gender issue, and uh, perhaps we should touch on this. Uh, you know, we are faced with the reality that young, you know, kids that can't even think properly can go to school, and the teacher will be questioning them and. Uh, teaching them, uh, you know, awkward situations and uh, giving them, you know, uh, suggestions or whisperings. Or, you know, you can change your, 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 your sex now, or you want to be a boy or a girl, you want to wear a, uh, wear a skirt, or you want to go to the girl's uh, toilet, or, you know, the toilets too are becoming unisex. Uh, legally, what can parents do if they want to oppose uh, such things and say, no, man, this is uh, going against the grain of a divine decree. Can this be taken up legally? Because uh, you see, notice our judiciary, will be acting with this one-world disorder, Ashraf. So, Shabbat, it's interesting when you say it's against our religious beliefs, because, look, let's let's look at the, the law as it is. The South African law says that this is a constitutional democracy. The mores or the rules of morals from a religious uh, belief system has no impact on the constitution. There's two examples that come to mind. It was a case that went all the way to the constitutional court called Christian 
uh, United Schools or something along those lines. I forget the exact citation. Now, they took the matter to court on the following basis that the Bible says, spare the rod and spoil the child. They insisted on corporal punishment. Now, we know corporal punishment was outlawed in the schools or in any, in any event, anywhere, whether it was prisoners that were flogged or children that were beaten with a belt or whatever else. Indeed, in a school environment, if there's any kind of assault on the child, that has got serious consequences. So corporal punishment is totally outlawed in terms of the precepts of the Constitution. And as a result, they said that you cannot impose Christian values on a school uh, and say it's okay for us to beat our children. So there you can see an example of the um, Constitution overriding the religious view. Another example would be where the Jehovah's Witnesses refused to give permission for the child to have a blood transfusion. The court overrode the parents' wishes. I mean, the Jehovah's Witnesses, obviously, based on religious beliefs. The court overruled that, saying that it's in the best interest of the minor child that a blood transfusion had to take place. And therefore, the child was given a blood transfusion, irrespective of the parents' beliefs, be it religious or otherwise. Um, then there was, prior to the unbanning of laws around marijuana, where a certain lawyer wanted to wear dreadlocks and, and said that um, marijuana was part of religious custom. Now, again, the court said, no, your religious beliefs can't have an impact on how we determine rules for the general society. So I'm, I give you these three varied examples simply to make the point that your religious belief of whatever persuasion is never going to convince the court that it is higher or it ranks higher than the Constitution. Now, the Constitution speaks in very broad terms of non-discrimination, non-gender, you know, non-discrimination on the basis of race, religion, gender. And um, as you can see, there have been a rise of a lot of rights for people from various persuasions and backgrounds. Um, you know, witchcraft is not a... Uh, is not uh, anti the state. So you you don't even have to believe uh, in anything but in, in whatever you believe in. So you can see the balancing is, is quite delicate between what the Constitution provides and what individual rights and belief systems are. Uh, we, had a, we had a very good example of it during lockdown when there was an application to open the mosques and allow uh, prayers in Jamaat. And the court said, no, this is against the scientific view at that time. And it was in order to prevent the spread of COVID. And well, you're not going to be allowed to do that.
And indeed, you saw the impact of this all the way up to the Haram, where there were less than a thousand people at one stage in the entire Hajj period. So, you know, when you say that there is this whole new movement about giving rights to a whole lot of other people on their demands, well, those are the challenges that you live with. Now, your question then was, what do parents do? Surprisingly, we found that parents are now opting to remove their children from schools where this thing has become the norm, especially with the shared bathrooms, and are reverting either to homeschooling or looking for Islamic schools or looking for gender single schools, like male or female only. So those are some of the responses. But whether you have a chance to legally challenge that um, and succeed on the basis of religious belief, I believe I've given three judgments uh, that will indicate that you we may not succeed. Now, Ashraf, I don't know, I read an article which also stated that, yeah, you can have your private schools and you can say, you know, we have our uh, sets of rules for the schools. But the government has the rights to come into that school and to check up that uh, you are implementing this law of, you know, having uh, the toilets, uh, you know, open to both. Uh, this, and you're implementing this law, if you're, uh, allowing those kids to have freedom to do what uh, the government is allowing them to do or programming them to do. So what happens then? I mean, uh, that's infringing on our rights, isn't it, Ashraf? Not in terms of the Department of Education. Mm. Yeah, they, they have the ultimate rights to do that. So say, for example, in a private school, if there's a racial incident, we can't say that the government uh, can't intervene or the department can't intervene uh, because they, their responsibility is education. So it's going to be very difficult for private schools to say, well, we're not, we're not uh, implementing this. I mean, on a practical level, they will not be able to implement it if there was no such demand. You, you know what I'm saying? Why build gender neutral toilets if there's no demand? If it's a boys only school or a girls, girls only school, I, I you know, I, it's difficult to see that demand coming up. I mean, it may well be, but then you may have to cater for maybe one or two people that have that. But it, it does become a little bit more challenging because, I mean, you know, people can identify as anything. People say they identify as cats. And uh, now how do you deal with that? Uh, you know, so anyway, I, I think these are some of the challenges that we'll have to wait and see how it's dealt with in the courts and elsewhere. And uh, as you pointed out, this is not unique to South Africa. It's a worldwide phenomenon now where rights to various minorities are being demanded and the rest of society has to then uh, concede that individuals have these rights and learn to live with it. But let's wait and see how, how it's dealt with in the courts. Absolutely. And around all these issues, people, the country is imploding. And, you know, and lastly, talking about, uh, you know, all these issues, America had the largest gathering of Satanists in, 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 in that part of the world, you know, and they were just having uh, uh, like, you know, all together and so forth. Uh, there was a stage when, uh, you know, the American 
or the Americans never allowed things like this. I mean, they were so like on the straight and narrow and suddenly it's open to everything. Even uh, South Africa, I mean, you've been to Cape Town recently. Uh, say, uh, Cape Town also has a satanic church, uh, Ashraf. Yeah, again, I, you know, I made reference earlier on to witchcraft and satanism not being a crime uh, and not being uh, legally uh, challengeable. Um, now, all of that goes on the basis that the Constitution gives you as an individual the right to practice anything, uh, even atheism. You know, you don't, uh, atheists probably don't have a church. It'll be redundant for them to have a church because they worship nothing. Um, so at the end of the day, it's not surprising to me that you have these, uh, you know, I didn't know about this event in the, in the States, but the States is also known for huge charismatic churches. Um, and these charismatic churches uh, I, I mean, there was a recent report now, one of the churches lost, just like a billion dollars just disappeared. So the question is, what happened to it? Uh, and why is some of these churches so, so um, financially sound? You know, the pastors and priests drive luxury cars and fly in private jets and helicopters and have huge homes. So that's on the other side of the coin is the right wing rise of uh, of uh, Christian right-wingers. And then you obviously now have the, the other side that, that you just mentioned, um, the Satan, say Satanist or Satan worshippers or whatever they call themselves. So this is all the results of what you would, um, you what you would term is as individual rights, uh, where everyone makes a demand that their own rights are supreme. However, you know, that that seems to have a self-limiting, uh, you know, value when it comes to, let's say, a Muslim wearing a hijab in France. They suddenly say, oh, no, but you don't have a right to dress this way. Your, your headgear is banned. Uh, anyone traveling through South African airports in a headgear can be stopped and searched. You, you know, it doesn't make sense on one level that you say that you have the absolute right and freedom to practice anything. And on the other hand, you say, no, 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 uh, but you can't dress in this manner. You can't cover your say, your, yourself. Your, your attire is not befitting the, the social norms of, uh, of the society. And then they determine that you're overdressed. So, to me, it appears to be at odds. And uh, maybe, you know, it's a little bit confusing as well. But, um, I mean, obviously the hypocrisy is clear. And again, the challenges are how we're going to be dealing with these uh, standards, split standards. Now, Ashraf, you know, the listeners are maybe highly confused. Yeah, you're the legal man. And, uh, you know, perhaps you could... Uh, uh, you know, and, uh, take away these cobwebs. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm talking to you as a layman. Uh, you know, we want to know, okay, you talk about the constitutional law and you say the con uh, constitution allows that. So uh, does the constitution of the country uh, supersedes that of uh, the majority religion of this country, which is uh, Christianity? 
I mean, uh, the uh, as you're quoting, the Constitution allows uh, Satanism, it allows this, it allows witchcraft and so forth. So in other words, is a Bible taken, I mean, is it redundant? Uh, does it doesn't, uh, because you, you, you swear an oath by the Bible? Tell us, Ashraf, uh, fill us in. So, um, let, let's deal with your first point, which is that South Africa, South Africa does have a constitution. The constitution is supreme, and it's a-religious. It's not, it's not based on the Christian religion. It used to be that even though South Africa had a majority Christian population, I mean, one of the parties is the African Christian Democratic Party. It's a party within uh, the ruling uh, government. Uh, they occupy a seat in parliament. They're part of the parliamentary process, but they're not the uber religion, and their religious rights do not influence the running of the state. Um, African customary religions and law is not part of South Africa. Therefore, you will find the, the whole challenge now regarding these uh, internment camps for the, the young, young men that become from boys to men when they go in for these uh, camps where they are circumcised. So now there's a whole movement, uh, there's a whole movement about dealing with such challenges. Um, there was African customary law and traditional leaders, but they're not part of government. They are a separate part. So, so, so you have to keep in mind that this piece of paper called the Constitution of the Republic is the most superior law of the country, not based on religion, not based on tribal authority, not based on anything else but the rights embodied in the Constitution. And the Constitution says there shall be no inequality. So now you can take your, your argument from there that if they, if they choose to allow one person to practice a particular religion, they cannot prevent somebody else from practicing what he believes in, even if it's witchcraft or Satanism. That is the belief system of that person, and it's based on equality and the right not to be discriminated against. That is the legal reasoning, Shabbat. Well, uh, yeah, you put that into perspective, uh, Ashraf, and bless you for that. Also, we're moving on to a topic which is a worldwide phenomena, border crossing, and it's a problem worldwide. And, you know, we knew that uh, that uh, Donald Trump wanted to build his uh, special wall and this wall and that wall. Talk to us about this uh, phenomena that is, uh, you know, uh, coming all over, and there's so many different types of uh, scenarios around this. Uh, let's uh, get into it, Ashraf. So Shabbat, let's talk about the history of walls generally, right? Uh, walls were always built either to keep people in or out. Did you know that in Wall Street in New York, the famous street where all the financial houses reside, there was actually a wall separating the Dutch settlers from the rest of the natives. Uh, 
we recall the Berlin Wall, right? There's a wall in the Middle East, in, um, in uh, Israel, and there's a wall in Mexico, uh, in the US border. And remember the Great Chinese Wall can be seen from the satellites. So why do people build walls? It's either to keep people in and or to keep people out. Now, Joe Biden was uh, at the wall a few days ago, but he never uh, spoke to any of the people trying to cross from Mexico into the US. Now, historically, Texas and those areas were part of Mexico, but now there's a wall separating the Mexicans from the US. And like South Africa, the poorer nations will always try and move to where they can earn a better living. This is no different to uh, the Mexicans trying to gain access to the US. Now, the president then commanded and funded President Trump at that time, the finalization of the wall, and yet the wall is breached in quite a few areas. People are desperate to get in to the US because it is the world's leading, leading economy and there is a shortage of workers. And the Mexicans do fulfill a lot of the, um, let's say, low, the, the low paying wages like agricultural workers and that kind of thing. And the US is basically saying, you can't be here illegally. You're a threat to us, to our national security, as well as you're taking jobs away and you become a burden on the state in respect of not just crime, but when it comes to medical services, which as you know in the US is a big problem because they had Obamacare um, and, and I mean, basically, uh, there's a competition for good medical health or good medical services. You're seeing the same thing in the UK now. The um, British uh, nurses and ambulance staff are on strike. And uh, I mean, it's having a huge impact on the health and safety of patients. South Africa, as you pointed out, we're not unique. In the old days, we had a electrified fence between South Africa and Mozambique going even through the Kruger National Park. That kept out a lot of people for political reasons, obviously. Uh, the fear of the South African government apartheid state at that time was not to allow so-called terrorists into South Africa. So the borders were very, very well maintained and, and, and uh, manned by the army. Uh, so, you know, you can see that subsequently there was a breakdown of uh, these border, borders and with the result that here in South Africa, we had the problem of porous borders, which is, which is widely recognized that people come to South Africa for economic benefits. 
and porous borders and the inability to keep people from crossing into South Africa illegally other than a point of entry. Uh, and so those challenges are now still with us where we, we don't have the highest population of refugees in the world, but we certainly have the most protected refugees in South Africa. So you can enter the country illegally and then you simply ask for uh, political asylum and um, and then your application is, is duly processed, albeit it takes a number of years. I uh, hope uh, we haven't lost uh, Ashraf Isub there. It seems as if uh, we have lost uh, Ashraf. And uh, yes, as you were uh, telling us earlier on, uh, there will be a load shedding and it will be affecting uh, the... He was involved in kidnappings and apparently, yeah, apparently he was here. In Johannesburg, I think a day or two ago, we had a person arrested for building hijacking and apparently happened to be an illegal foreigner. That means without any papers in the country. So you can see the reason that walls are being built is to try and stem the tide of people that that the host state says, I don't want you here. That depends on whether you have the technology or whether you have the ability to breach uh, and, and to maintain um, the high level military presence or the detection. I mean, I, I read it somewhere, and I don't know if this is actually accurate, but there was something like 6,000 people arrested on South Africa's borders. Now, you know that um, South Africa has now deployed the Border Management Authority, which is a specialized force along the borders to try and uh, cut the number of illegal immigrants coming into South Africa. Then there was a whole fiasco of the Zimbabwean fence that cost about 30 million. And uh, that fence proved to be ineffective to keep out uh, Zimbabweans. So the response to the by the state uh, to illegal immigration or crossings is to fortify the borders, whether it's being a wall, a physical wall, a digital wall, uh, electrical wall or you know whatever measures they take deploying the army etc etc that is the reason for the creation of these boundary walls Shabbat. absolutely ashraf and as you you know you notice the boundary walls are put there uh, you know it's a fascinating history i mean you brought in uh, the different uh, dimensions and different scenarios but uh, the most breached country on earth uh, could have been America and uh, any other countries that you can think of. I mean, South Africa is a free for all, you know, we know that. But the most breached country, and it was, uh, you know, these uh, uh, Mexicanos and the Latinos, they're getting into uh, America. And uh, that was a land of, uh, you know, uh, prosperity and uh, the dream of becoming millionaires. But they, as you said, they got the lower end uh, job. Uh, but what's in there for them, you know, going into America? But And then you notice a racism when it comes to these border things and certain borders, uh, they'll accept certain colors, uh, but they will reject other colors. What's your thoughts on that? So America has basically two borders, one in the south and one in the north. 
And in the north, they seem to have a more um, a generous system of of crossing into uh, from America into Canada and vice versa. That is not to say that the challenges of uh, illegal substances, drugs, and otherwise uh, doesn't doesn't happen between North uh, America and Canada. Also, surprisingly, in uh, Canada, certain states, uh, marijuana and other drugs are, are not illegal. So, you know, you could find that people cross over either to buy cheaper groceries or to buy, you know, recreational drugs or whatever. But no doubt, every country has its challenges. Now, let's say you don't even have a wall. But you can see from the experience in North Africa, where people are trying to cross over from Libya and other North African states by rubber dinghy boat or smugglers uh, into Europe. And uh, you could find themselves um, in the Christmas islands in, in uh, down south in Australia. Uh, and and other areas where uh, Italian have, Italians have islands and and then they have picked up. So I don't know if you actually saw the story of three stowaways on a rudder of a ship uh, from Lagos in Nigeria, and uh, they went to I, I can't remember the country, and they were were then rescued, treated, and then two of them were sent back and one was still hospitalized. So what you're really seeing, Shabbat, is not, you're seeing human beings simply trying to survive, simply trying to earn a better living, simply trying in certain cases uh, to put food on the table. It's, it's a known fact here in South Africa that a lot of what the refugees earn doesn't stay here. It goes back to their countries. Uh, and I mean, in their countries, they uh, have families that they, they support in. Um, and I'm not talking about now the criminal element where there is a, there's this whole, you know, trade in drugs and uh, human trafficking and that kind of other crimes uh, or counterfeiting goods or whatever it is. I'm talking about just the human need for them to be able to leave their local places where life is intolerable and poverty continues and lack of opportunity is there uh, and there's no way out but for them to leave uh, and to try and travel to another destination in order to earn an income. So every country almost, you know, universally deals, uh, struggles with illegal migration, barring Seychelles. Seychelles, you don't need a visa. They, uh, they welcome everyone. And uh, the backbone of that uh, industry is tourism. So they don't mind you coming and staying and doing whatever you need to. Uh, and they, you know, basically open to, to all kinds of people coming in. So you can see that most countries in, in, uh, in the world are faced with this thing called illegal migrants. And how they deal with them is different. 
I know in the UK now they're talking about shipping them all up to Rwanda. I mean, can you imagine such a thing? You take all the illegal migrants and you don't keep them on your national soil, but you deport them to a third country almost. Quite surprising how the different countries react. Um, but there was a very interesting study on forced migration. So forced migration is is where a, a country is destroyed by war or external aggression or internal instability. And then the population have to leave. Prime example would be Syria. I mean, a million people crossed international borders often on foot and got into Germany. Um, again, you know, the, the reason for forced migration um, is, is, is clear. Uh, I think somebody asked a fundamental question that who caused the Iraqis uh, and Afghanis to basically leave? Um, and, and, you know, once the war was over, uh, the human tragedy in its wake forced people to leave. I read something very, very interesting, and I don't know if it's accurate, but the contractors that were left in Afghanistan and trained by the U.S. Army, obviously they couldn't remove all of their allies, um, were now deployed by the Russians to fight uh, in, uh, uh, in the Ukraine. And, and some of these people were very willing to do so, saying that they felt disappointed by being left behind when the Americans pulled out. And uh, they have now no choice, but uh, they're going to be mercenaries of one or other, I think, I don't know which one, but they mentioned the Wagner Group and a whole lot of... But, but there you have it. There, there I'm, I'm, I'm going very broad about some of the effects of um, you know invasion of a country and then forced migration and, and why people will end up doing what they're doing, trying to go all over the world. Shafat. I tell you, Ashraf, you hit the nail on the head because if you said those uh, disgruntled Afghanis are joining, uh, actually there is a, uh, what do you call this, like a private militia there, the Wagner Group. You hit the nail on the head and that's why they're winning. They're winning town upon town in Ukraine. And I know now who's doing the fighting for them. Hey, tops, Ashraf, brilliant indeed. Really enjoyed your contribution uh, this evening. Perhaps your parting words, uh, Ashraf. Well, as always, you know, Shafat, we have uh, immense uh, trust in our Creator. Uh, but it does require us to do the necessary, make the dua for everyone, do the Surah Yasin's uh, consistently. Remember to pray for everyone. You know, the world is going through a, uh, a great, great change. Uh, obviously, always asking for the protection of the Creator. And remember my previous message, and I think we must keep on talking about this. People must know how to grow food. They must, they must introspect. They must learn the skills because uh, growing food is going to become a very, very essential thing in the future and I would urge people to also plant trees uh, you know I, I read something interesting there are more trees on earth than there are stars in the sky but the trees are the lungs of the earth and we have to maintain um, you know the, the, the natural balance so if we can in other in any way 
try and lead a clean, natural life, uh, grow our own food, make it nutritious, and help people either in whichever way, if you can feed people, if you don't need the food. There's lots of soup kitchens. They could take your food and, and use it. Um, and do your best, you know. And remember everyone in, uh, in your duas. Inshallah, Ashraf, you have a blessed uh, evening ahead. And Allah bless you for your, your wise words and uh, taking out your time from your busy schedule and uh, for being on, uh, uh, you know, the legal talk. You make it, uh, you know, yeah, without you, I don't know. I may be rudderless, but Allah bless you, Ashraf. You have a blessed evening ahead. And Inshallah, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Time for us to go for the Isha Azan. And inshallah, we will continue after that.